Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it's made. Hello, everyone. Today I'm talking to Josh Tazov from the Claremont Grad University. Josh, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. And we are going to talk about two of your papers um, that study the impact uh, of awareness raising interventions on meat consumption. Could you briefly describe what these two papers are about? Sure. So this is uh, joint work with my co-authors, Andrew Jalil, um, Arturo Vargas Bustamante, and Membera Haile. And, or the second paper is with Membera and not the first. And first, I, I should probably motivate the, the problem. So we're looking at two problems associated with animal agriculture. The first is just that, that animal agriculture has huge environmental externalities. So about 14% of greenhouse gas emissions come from animal agriculture. And to, you know, to, to compare that, that's larger than the, the transportation sector. So uh, the, the impact is, is quite large. If we look at like habitat destruction, uh, 91% of Amazon deforestation is for animal agriculture. So that goes to cattle grazing. So land is cleared to make grazing lands for cattle, or it goes to farming soy, which is used for animal feed. And these problems wouldn't, would be much, much diminished if people would switch to more plant-based food products because plants are often orders of magnitude anywhere from like two to over a hundred times more efficient in terms of uh, producing nutrients. And you know, that makes sense, right? Because for every nutrient you get out of um, an animal source, um, the animal had to consume plants to, to produce that, right? So that conversion factor could any be, be anywhere from like two to 167. So, you know, so that's kind of the, the, the range. So um, in terms of the climactic impact, in terms of like water cleanliness and habitat destruction, um, animal agriculture is, is, a, is a big problem. The second problem area you know, associated with animal agriculture is animal welfare. So that's a huge issue. And um, the reason why is because uh, animal agriculture has become incredibly efficient over, over the last few decades. Animal agriculture has transformed from like, you know, maybe when we were kids, we were introduced to farming through, you know, a kid's picture book where you see these different species like a sheep and a pig. And, you know, they're all kind of happy together on a farm with green pastures and that's not often the case for, for the vast majority of animal agriculture. So things have moved much more to concentrated animal feeding operations, CAFOs, or you know, often colloquially referred to as factory farms. And these are much more efficient in terms of you know, producing meat or other animal products like dairy and eggs. But that comes at the cost of you know, high density, causes harm to the animal themselves. So for example, Hens are put in these battery cages and they have less than an eight and a half 
by 11 inch sheet of paper, like the regular printer paper that we have in the US, like to have less space than that per hen in these cages. And then the, the hens are in these cages and they have the, you know, because they're so packed in, they um, react by pecking at each other. And so then the industry's response to prevent the packing is to slice off the hen's beaks so that they don't peck at each other. And this is, you know, a beak is not like clipping a, a fingernail. It's like, um, you know, this is a important appendage with lots of nerves to the animal. So it's more like, you know, cutting off lips or, or, or hands or something like that. And the hens then could have chronic pain. And, you know, it's similar for, for pigs. Pigs are put in gestation crates. It's so tight that they don't have room to move. And this is very widespread. So 99% of meat consumed in the U.S. is raised in factory farms. On a global scale, it's about 74%. And the scale is like absolutely immense. So 70 billion land animals are slaughtered every year. And that's like 10 times the population, uh, the human population of the planet. Um, that's how many are slaughtered every year for, for meat. Um, so the scale of, of this suffering is just kind of uh, unfathomable almost. And, you know, I, I could understand that some of the audience out there um, think, you know, is, is comfortable with, say, killing animals to produce meat. But I think most people would agree that if we could eat food that doesn't require animals to, to suffer, then we should we should avoid it, right? So, so those are the two major issues that our papers are trying to address. And in both the papers, what we're doing is we're doing a randomized controlled trial, looking at the effect of some intervention designed to reduce meat consumption. So that's what we're doing. Uh, in the first paper, what we do is we go to college classrooms. And we have an educational intervention. So we have a guest lecture in Econ 1 course. And we give a 55-minute lecture on the food choice effects of global warming. So how your food choices then relate to producing greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, with the bit main pitch of that guest lecture being, you know, if you eat more towards plants, the impact is lower than if you eat towards meat. And we had 10 classrooms and we randomly assigned five to be that the treatment, which I just described, and then five were a control lecture. And the control lecture was also a guest lecture, but it had nothing to do with meat consumption. It was on inequality. And then at, at the college campus, there's a central dining hall, and the students primarily purchase their meals through card swipes in the dining hall. And so we could follow the students from the classroom into their meal purchases, and we could then measure the impact of the, guest, of the treatment lecture on meat consumption. So that's what we did in the first study. And what we found is that the intervention reduced the probability of purchasing a meat-based meal by 4.6 percentage points. This is off of a base of, I think, something around like 55% of the meals are like meat. 
So this is kind of like a seven or eight percent decrease in meat consumption. The first semester, in the first semester, the decrease was about a 10% decrease in meat consumption. And then the decrease fades slowly over the academic year. But even in the second semester, we did the intervention in, in the first semester, in like October, I think it was. And then even in the second semester, four to seven months later, we still see a persistent effect. So that was the first paper. And I, to be honest, I did not expect such a big effect. But um, yeah, we got a persistent effect there from just a one 50-minute guest lecture. And then in the second study, so the first study was sort of addressing the first negative consequence associated with, with animal agriculture. That's the environmental externalities. And then the second study is uh, sort of attacking the, uh, the other problem, the animal welfare problem. And so what we do there, now the structure is very similar. Um, we do the study again on college campus. And again, our outcome is actual real, real meat consumption in the dining halls. And again, we track that through card swipes. The main difference is the intervention. And the intervention we do there is we hand out vegan, like vegan pamphlets, basically. So maybe some of the audience has experienced this, like, You've experienced this on college campuses or, or, or public areas. Somebody hands you a pamphlet and it has pictures of happy animals on it. And then you open it up and, and it starts talking about, you know, um, animal cruelty and, and farming. And you see these really ugly pictures of animals treated in factory farms. And maybe you throw up the pamphlet. You're like, I don't want to read this anymore. So that what we're testing there is, do those pamphlets have any effect? Do those pamphlets do anything? It's pretty widespread intervention uh, uh, done by the activist community. And there's not much evidence on whether these things have any effect. Um, so uh, that, that's what we do there. And we get a very large sample size. We have about 200,000 meals and about 600, over 600 participants in that study. Um, in the first study, it's a little bit smaller. We have about 200 students and about, I think, around 50,000 meals. And anyway, we look at the effects of these pamphlets. And what we find is no effect in the aggregate, but we do see um, small short-run effects um, that are different for men and for women. For men, we find a reduction in poultry consumption by about 2.4 percentage points um, in the first semester. And for women, we find a decrease in beef consumption by about 1.5 percentage points. But this, these effects fade um, when we look into the second semester. So we, we basically find these small temporary effects. And I would like to say something more definitive, like this intervention, you know, had these treatment effects of exactly this that lasted, you know, long into the future. Or I'd like to be able to say, uh, the opposite, like there's a, this is a null effect, there is no effect, these, these do nothing. I, unfortunately, I can't really make a very strong statement either way. Because these um, pamphlets are just so low cost, they could be enormously cost effective, even with very small treatment effects, right? And so very small treatment effects are very hard to detect. Um, you need enormous sample sizes to detect this. 
So it might be the case that even if the treatment affects like one percentage point for like one month or two months or something like that, um, this might still be a really cost-effective intervention. And we're, we're unfortunately, we're not powered to detect treatment effects at that level. So we could say that there are some short-run uh, treatment effects that uh, seem to be there, at least if we disaggregate by gender um, and by some other groups. But in aggregate, there's no significant treatment effect. And in the long run, there's no significant treatment effect. So if anything, there's, it's like maybe there's some weak effects there. So, yep, those are the, basically the summaries of the two papers. Thanks. Sound both very interesting. Those two papers are on a very similar topic, but you changed a little bit between the papers. So you changed the message from environmental concerns to animal welfare concerns, but you also changed the type of intervention, right, from the lecture to the pamphlets. What was your consideration behind changing two things at the same time and, and as opposed to maybe having a lecture about animal welfare to keep it very similar to the first project? Oh, yeah, yeah. Great question. Yeah, we didn't, you know, oh, yeah, I, I do kind of view these two papers as independent as opposed to a follow-up on, on the first study. But, um, yeah, we're very interested in what you mentioned, too. So there's, like, like I, these papers aren't really meant to be compared to each other per se, um, and, but, but it's very interesting to say, well, okay, so this, this in-class in education seemed to actually have a really big effect. Um, and a persistent effect that lasted, you know, uh, the whole academic year, even though, you know, this was done at the beginning of the academic year, we still saw an effect sort of by the end of this end of the second semester. So, you know, is it the fact that that's coming just, you know, any lecture would work? Does it have to be about environment? Maybe the animal welfare version would work as well. And I think that's a really interesting question. But yeah, there were kind of logistical reasons like, It's much easier to run a study that takes up class time when it's on climate change, because I think this is more widely recognized as an issue that is of you know, prime concern, whereas the animal welfare issue is much more controversial. I don't think it should be more controversial, but it hasn't been accepted by society to, to the extent that climate change has. So um, I think convincing people to give us the time, we, we didn't try, but convincing people to give us the class time to do the animal welfare uh, message, I think would be a little bit harder. So that's, that, that was one concern. Other concern is, we, it wasn't really even a concern, it was just kind of a uh, expediency thing. Like we, we had our infrastructure set up, our data infrastructure set up, and The pamphlet study could be done really easy. I mean, it's just really easy to just go out there and hand out pamphlets. So we were able to do that really quickly. And this is something that people actually do, right? So there's lots of people out there who are handing out these, you know, pro-vegan pamphlets on college campuses all over the country or maybe all over the world. And so this is something that we could test really, really easily. So that, that was sort of how we were thinking about that. Yeah, definitely sounds like an like an advantage that you research something that people actually do. That's probably for most people, for most actives, it's hard to get people to listen to a 50-minute lecture. So both of your papers study specifically food choice and trying to convince people of eating less meat. But of course, they're also kind of related to a bigger question on 
moral persuasion and how you can change people's minds on social issues. So when you started this research agenda, were you always thinking about doing something on meat consumption or did you have like a broader idea in mind about social change and meat consumption was just the topic that you chose because it was easy to implement? Um, yeah, I definitely lean into the meat consumption, like is my main motivation. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Peter Singer, right? You know, to, <laughs> I'll just lay it out there. I like my ethical view of the world is pretty utilitarian. And, you know, the way I view it is that, uh, you know, animals, most animals are sentient beings and this food system that we have with, with factory farming imposes just this large, just vast, large scale suffering on animals. And so in my mind, this is one of the uh, you know, biggest ethical problems current, that, that we're currently facing in the world. Uh, this is something that sort of has been on my mind um, for many years. And what, after I got tenure, I kind of thought to myself, well, you know, what's the biggest, most important topics I could work on for which I have skills that, that I could address? Um, and so, yeah, the meat was something that I had been interested in for a long time. I actually have several vegan economist research teams that I'm working with. We spent years trying to come up with a project. Um, and it was just really hard to come up with something where we thought we could get good data and that, that would be feasible. And um, eventually, sort of, we came up on this idea and I looked around for schools where it would be feasible to actually run something like this. Because what you need, the, the real challenge here is the data infrastructure. It's being able to actually see real meat purchases. And I looked at a lot of college campuses and it just wasn't possible. And then it sort of clicked once I actually found um, a school where you could do this. So yeah, that, that, that was sort of my journey there. And with my co-authors, it was somewhat similar. You know, we had been, uh, I was talking to Arturo and Andy for a while now about you know, doing stuff on meat and they were very excited about that possibility. And so once we found a school where we could do this, we, we, we jumped on it. Very interesting. And you mentioned at the start of uh, what you just said that you did this after you got tenure. That was also something that I was thinking about because a lot of researchers, I think, have social causes that they're really passionate about. But if you are a young academic, like a PhD student or an untenured faculty member, you also have really strong pressure to publish in top economics journals. Do you think there's is like a trade-off between doing something that you personally care about and doing something that gets you well published? Or can you design projects that achieve both aims? Yeah, that's, I, I wish I had a really deep insight there. I, I'm not sure if I do, but um, so, I mean, one thing I'll say is that like this pressure to publish in top journals, it's, it's absolutely a real thing for a lot of academics, but it's not a real thing for, for all academics, right? So I, I understand that if you're in a, one of these highly competitive programs, you know, they want publications in very specific journals. But that's not that's not universal. So I was not told for my tenure that you need publications in these journals. You know, there there was a quality bar for sure. But um, and and I don't know how common this is because this is you know my experience. But they told me you know they wanted good papers, but I think they were very open minded to what where they got published. And as long as they were considered you know quote unquote good, you know whatever that means. I think they would count them pretty heavily. Now, 
I also have to get letter writers on board too, which and 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 who the letter writers are and how they evaluate. I mean, they're probably using more of sort of the standard econ, you know, criteria like how well ranked this journal is, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, I just want to put that out to say that yeah, there is that pressure, but I, I'm not. I mean, maybe some of the audience is, you know, at these highly competitive, you know, our grad students at these highly competitive institutions, and they're looking at their uh, advisors and where their advisors are publishing. And it's not to say that, and this isn't really necessarily a bad thing, but um, it's not to say that you'll end up at, at these extremely competitive institutions. You might end up at an institution that has a broader criteria for, for what they're willing to tenure. So, so anyway, I just want to put that out there. And then, um, yeah, there's this kind of issue of doing good economics for, versus doing stuff that you personally find important, and they're not always aligned. I wouldn't say that they're orthogonal. I, I think they probably are somewhat correlated. Um, I think you could do both, but it does kind of make it a little bit more of a challenge because there might be something that you find to be um, super interesting that doesn't have an obvious in as far as economics goes, and you have to try and find like, you know, it's like a Venn diagram, you're trying to find that overlap, that's both like something that you're passionate about, that you think is really important, but that also is economic. I think a lot of the time you can do it, but it's a bit harder. These two papers that I did, that, that we did, they're not very economic. See? Um, and so they don't, they might not satisfy the econ criteria there. Um, like, I do have some designs for, for projects that would satisfy both, but they're, they're a bit more ambitious and they require more money. And so I kind of actually viewed, to be perfectly honest, I kind of viewed the, the climate study, the first project that we did um, as a, originally I viewed it as a pilot, as sort of a, a first project to, to figure out the logistics for the more ambitious projects that we haven't gone into yet. So, and it also has a way to fund, to, to, to sh you know, show evidence for proof of concept to fund future projects that, that are going to be more conceptually economic, you see. Yeah, so the first paper is published in, in Food Policy, uh, which is, like you already mentioned, is none of, not one of the traditional economics journals. So the consideration behind this was basically that you really wanted to do this project and it didn't fit well into an economics journal, or did you also have something other in mind why you didn't try it for some economics journal, but went for a multidisciplinary journal? Yeah, I think since we, we all had tenure at this point, we want to get it to the right people and the right people are the people who sort of care about this issue the most. And that's probably not economists, it's people who do food policy stuff, right? So people who um, care about climate change um, and recognize that animal agriculture is one of uh, you know, the, the factors that are important there. It's people who care about food choice and um, how to, you know, sway consumer demand. So it's a, so sort of a more interdisciplinary audience that we wanted to get. And food policy seemed like the right journal for that. Um, none of us are really food people. I think for all of us, this is our first paper on food. So I'm not sure about Arturo. Um, Arturo is a public health guy. Um, but so I, we're not, we're, we're not really experts in like where the right place to publish for that is, but that was, that was our impression that food policy would be a good match.
So you would say that if economists are kind of aspiring to have impact, they should not only kind of look at what are the highest ranked journals, but also what are the people who read these journals? And maybe it doesn't help if my papers published in the AR if the policy experts whom I want to inform never read that, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I so I, that, that's my impression. I mean, I, I've talked. Well, I'm thinking of one very prominent economist right now who you know, um, rather than send this project, this paper. This is a very famous paper. You've probably read it. Um, rather than send it to the AER, like the top econ journals, they sent it straight to science, and they got it in science. And I and I actually asked him, you know, why did you send it to science and not AER? And it's just like I don't want to wait the years it takes to to get it through that the process. And um, so there's there's multiple considerations. Um, I mean, some is you know uh, journals outside of economics sometimes are a lot faster. Also, I think in that uh, in the, the case of that particular case, not only is are the science journals faster, but also like the results are interesting to scientists more generally. Um, and so you just you get a lot more people who see the paper and you potentially get a lot more citations. So, um, yeah, there there is the possibility of having a higher impact outside of economics than in, in economics. I don't know. I, I'm not a great. <laughs> that's my impression. I'm not really an expert on these things. But it, yeah, I think it's, it's it's something worth considering. Thanks for the insights on that, even if you don't consider yourself an expert. And so going back kind of to the start of the project, how did you form the research team for this project? Did you work with the co-authors before on other projects or how did that happen? Yeah, so, um, so yeah, actually Andy and Arturo, uh, we all went to graduate school together. And Andy and Arturo are, are married, actually, so um, that's how they know each other. <laughs> so, so we all kind of knew each other before. We, we ended up all getting jobs in Los Angeles. And at some point, they became, they went vegan. I was vegan. Um, and and I'm, I'm vegan for the, for the ethical reasons. That was always my um, original motivation. And hence, like, the, the desire to do research in this area. And, you know, when I found out that they were going vegan and like we were going out to, you know, vegan tacos and, you know, the best vegan restaurants in LA and checking out the food. And I was like, you know, and I, I was, I was leaning towards doing research on this. I hadn't started any projects yet. I was like, Hey, how, you know, how do you guys feel about doing vegan economics? Right? Like I, this is something I really want to do. And they're like, yeah, let's, that sounds really cool. And so that, that's basically how that started. Um, you know, we, we took the inputs of, ve of superb vegan tacos and transformed them into vegan research, economics research. So, um, and then with Menbera, uh, Menbera is, is my PhD student, and um, she was interested in health-related issues. And um, although the papers aren't explicitly on health, like, you know, um, meat is also a health issue. That's like maybe the third kind of negative consequence associated with high meat consumption, it's associated with cancer, certain kinds of processed meats. You know, there's actually pretty strong evidence that they're associated with higher risks of cancer. So Mimbera um, was pretty interested in the health aspects and, and we needed help to, to run that second project. So we brought Mimbera on. So that's, that's basically how, how that team formed. Cool, thanks for sharing the insight. And you already mentioned the 
initial study that you did, you kind of thought about it more as a pilot than something that you necessarily wanted to publish very well. Um, but how did the experimental design of this evolve over time? Was this kind of your first idea to do something quick or did you have other things that you tried out before you did that? Um, yeah, this was pretty much the first thing that we thought to do. It was, it, it, you know, both of these studies are super simple. Like conceptually, they're really simple projects, right? It's RCT treatment versus control. Like <laughs> it's panel data. So we have a baseline in each of these studies of, of meat consumption. And then we look at difference and difference, essentially. Right. And, and we randomize people into the treatment and control groups. But it's, it's, it's a pretty, you know, this is a pretty simple design. What's the effect of intervention? There's only one intervention on outcome like that's you know, right. That's it. So there wasn't too much evolution. You know, of course, there was a lot of like figuring out exactly how we wanted to do the intervention and like, like, how are we going to do the logistics of the pamphlets? There's all there's def definitely a bunch of iteration on both of these things. But yeah, I think this was pretty much what we planned to do from the beginning. There wasn't there wasn't too much changing for future projects where we're hope, hoping to be more ambitious and we're getting hope, we're hoping to do something more conceptual. I expect a lot more inter iteration. Right. So I think when you're just trying to estimate, like, what is the treatment effect of this intervention with a, with a RCT? Like, yeah, it, it, it didn't really take too much jiggering around. Um, and the logistics also ended up being not not too hard either. But I think when things are more conceptual, you have to think more about that theory. Then, in my experience, projects like those tend to get revised over and over and over again. So I think here we were pretty lucky. And were there any specific ethical issues that you considered in this project because you're trying to kind of persuade people to change their lifestyle? And how did the ethics of your process look like? Yeah, not, I, I didn't feel like there were any, there was anything out of the ordinary there. I mean, is keeping the subject's data confidential. So kind of go through uh, sort of a data management procedure to, to maintain, you know, data, data privacy. So uh, I think that was the, that, that was sort of the biggest concern there. Um, as far as on the persuasion angle, I mean, you know, the whole of point of all sorts of experiments, economic experiments, is to get people to change behavior. So yeah, I mean, these interventions are definitely designed to get people to change their behavior, but not in a way that would, you know, cause them or anyone else harm. I mean, of course, if anything, the whole point is to reduce harm, right? To reduce the negative environmental externalities associated with meat consumption and to reduce the suffering of animals in, in factory farms. So yeah, I didn't really have any concerns regarding that. And the funding sources for these experiments were a bit unusual, maybe in the sense that they were charities that don't really have, don't have the main goal to kind of give grants to economists, but are the charities that care about animal welfare. So they're kind of the outcome of this experiments. So how does the, the grant making process at these institutions look like compared to more traditional funding sources? And is there something that you maybe would recommend that people should look out for if they um, want to do research on social issues? Yeah, so I mean, I think the process was, I don't have extensive experience applying for grants, you know, uh, elsewhere. I, you know, I have 
I, I've done some internal grants. I guess I've gotten some grants, but mostly via my co-authors through like Social Security Administration, NBR. Um, I'm currently in the process of applying for NSF. You know, yeah, actually, there's a lot, a big range in terms of how much, how formal the process is. Um, the NSF, for example, is very formal. There's lots of steps. These were, I guess, a bit more informal, but I think they were still pretty competitive. And um, there's a, a bit of work that had to go into them. Yeah. Was there, was there another question? Just whether you would uh, recommend um, searching for these kind of alternative funding sources to people who uh, wanted to research on social issues. Or maybe specifically the ch charities that you work with, would you recommend um, searching yeah. or like applying there? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, we had a great experience with both of these organizations. So in that sense, absolutely. But they're both, of course, also very specific in, in what they kind of want to fund. So, you know, animal charity evaluators, you know, it, it's, it's basically animal welfare issues, 100%, right? So that's what they want to fund. Um, Open Philanthropy Project, I think they call themselves Open Philanthropy now. Um, they have specific cause areas. And they're pretty focused on those specific cause areas. And it just so happens that one of them is farmed animal welfare. So, um, so we are very lucky that both these organizations exist because I think, I don't know, five years ago, I think there were zero, as far as we're aware, like really nobody who would fund research on this. These guys are really new. So we got really lucky that, um, They happened to be there when we were putting these projects together. And I mean, you already kind of hinted at this maybe bit that advocating for a vegetarian or vegan diet is a bit of a controversial topic. So not especially in terms of like the animal suffering aspect of it. Not everyone agrees on that. Um, have you ever experienced any kind of negative reactions from people who do not share your views on this topic because you're doing this research? I've expected lots of negative reactions. But I, I haven't gone that many. I've, I've been pretty surprised, actually. I think, so regardless of whether you think it's okay to kill an animal to produce meat to eat, just most people are not in favor of torturing animals to produce meat. And that's effectively what's going on at vast scale in factory farms. And there's actually surveys on this, right? People, uh, most people do care about um, animal welfare. To some extent, they might not think it's very important, but I mean, most people would object to torturing an animal for fun. So I, I think that is not too controversial. So I, I've actually been surprised by how little pushback I've gotten. And I've been more surprised by how on board people have been when I bring this up. I'm actually kind of shocked. Like I'll, I'll mention this to people and like people say, well, yeah, I'm not vegetarian. I eat meat, but, you know, my daughter's ve vegetarian and I've heard these arguments where it's like, oh, yeah, I've heard about how animals are treated in factory farms. And uh, yeah, it's pretty bad. Like, I haven't made any change myself, but but yeah, I really wish, you know, it wasn't that way. Right. And so I've, I've heard a lot of kind of sentiments like this. Maybe it's the circles I've been in. Like, I haven't really gone outside of my like little academic bubble and like communicated this to like the public at large. And maybe I would get very different reactions from them. But um, I mean, it's, you know, even just from the sort of survey evidence of representative samples of, of, of the U.S., for example, most people are really against animal cruelty and they don't they, they'd much prefer their their 
meat or, or there are other food products that come from animals to be produced in a way that doesn't cause animal cruelty. You know, for example, he, I'm in California. So there was a proposition a few years back um, to Proposition 2. I forgot exactly what it did. Something about, um, you know, giving more space, I think, to to egg-laying hens. And it, it, it passed overwhelmingly. And there are were, there were a lot of forces against that. I mean, I think it passed, like, don't quote me here, but I think it was like 70% voted in favor. Like some huge supermajority. And, and this is in spite of the fact that it would likely increase the cost of buying eggs in California. So people, um, I think, are pretty, you know, in favor of, of not torturing animals for food. That being said, when it comes to the personal decision of what do you buy at the supermarket, people don't follow through. Right. They say they, they, they have the sentiment, but they often don't follow through through their, through their actions. So, yeah, anyway. To answer the question, yeah, I haven't I haven't gotten much pushback yet, but I expect that at some point I will. Oh, well, that sounds encouraging. So you already mentioned that you are a vegan yourself and that you kind of care about this topic. How do you think in general on like working on topics that you're personally uh, really invested in? Do you think uh, it's it's good for the quality of your research, or do you have any concerns about staying objective? I mean, I think in general, if working on something that you're passionate about is a great thing to do. It takes, I mean, gosh, um, it takes forever to get these projects done. Forever. I mean, these these two projects actually were very, I, I would say, were pretty streamlined. One we just finished, but the the first project from I think when we ran it to when we got it published wasn't wasn't too much. I think it was like three years. Okay, that's not bad at all. Um, I mean, there's other projects that take five years, more than five years. I mean, it's it's very common, and so you need to be able to sustain interest on these things. And so if it's something you don't care about, it's going to be really hard to get through it. Um, I mean, what helps is having multiple projects so that like, at least when you get bored on one, you could switch to another. But yeah, I think being passionate about the topic is, is great. As far as staying objective, I mean, there's not really, I, I, don't, I don't think there's any issue of objectivity here per se, right? Like, it's not like I have a pet intervention that I'm really trying to promote. That's not what we're doing here. I mean, I think what you're, you're sort of um, sort of drawing attention to is the problem area, right? I, I recognize uh, that animal suffering and that animal agriculture and its um, environmental externalities are, are problems. That's, 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 so I'm identifying that as a problem. So um, a development economist identifies poverty as a problem, but I don't think we would, you know, it wouldn't really come to mind to say that development economists can't be objective because they don't like poverty or like that a macro economist can't be objective because they don't like recessions right so um, I don't like global warming and I don't like um, uh, animal suffering this is goal-driven research in the same way that um, you know development economics is goal-driven in the sense of alleviating poverty yeah we, we do have a goal in mind but it I don't think it makes us unobjective in terms of the science of trying to determine what the treatment effect of some intervention is, right? So. As a final thing, uh, before we conclude the interview, do you have another piece of advice for young academics who want to do research related to a social cause beyond the things that we talked about in the interview? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess this might relate also to one of the other questions you asked, like, how can you combine this? Like, like, okay, especially if you're, if you're in grad school, you, you need to do something that's maybe a little bit more economics -y. say your passion is some social cause. A lot of times there's a way to use your social cause as a backdrop or use whatever your passion is as a backdrop to explore an economic question. So, for example, you know, what's, what's maybe an uh, important economic question in, in behavioral economics, like maybe something to do with self-control problems, time preferences, or maybe something to do with people's social preferences or dishonesty or something like that, or lying to oneself, beliefs, um, belief utility, if you, you could take those concepts and then try and test some theory of, test one of the economic theories in, in one of those topics in, in the context of, of, your, of, of the area that you're interested in. So coming back to sort of this, this uh, meat consumption issue, there's a lot of more rich behavioral economics that could be tested there. We didn't do it in our papers, the, the, I, this is what I want to do for, for, future, for future projects. But you could test things like habit change. Habit change is something that relates to self-control problems. It relates to, in terms of specific other issues that behavioral economists might care about, like obesity, um, smoking cessation. Like these are areas where other behavioral economists have already uh, moved into. And so if you did something that was more general on like changing habits, like that would have repercussions for, um, you know, uh, behavioral economics more broadly. So uh, economists would be much more likely to, you know, interpret such a project as like standard behavioral economics. Okay, just thanks so much for doing the interview. Yeah, my pleasure. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. And I hope you also tune into the next episode.